Amen. Bob Geldof concludes his uh, brutally honest autobiography with the words, Is That It? Indeed, that's what he calls his book. Having achieved so much in entertainment and in social action, he ends his book saying, It's a question I keep asking myself. Is that it? Barry Humphreys, the man who is Dame Edna Everidge in his autobiography entitled Something More, opens his book like this. I always wanted more. I never had enough milk or money or socks or sex or holidays or first editions or solitude or gramophone records or free meals or, fr- or real friends or guiltless pleasure or neckties or applause or unquestioning love. Of course, I've had more than my share of most of these commodities, but it always left me with a vague feeling of unfulfilment. Where was the rest, he says. In his diaries, uh, the actor Kenneth Williams wrote, I wonder if anyone will ever know about the emptiness of my life. His last entry on the last day of his life just about sums it up. Simply, he wrote, Oh, what's the bloody point? See, a sense of meaninglessness and hopelessness is written all over modern autobiographies. And that can be a bit of a shock for us as we ordinary people look to the stars, we look to those that we aspire to be, like people who are successful, people who've made it, people who it seems have everything, and then we discover that they're just ordinary people who themselves are all at sea. They too long for the meaning of life and would, know, would love to know how to live life. A few years ago, Andy Hawthorne from the band The Levellers wrote this, Everywhere I look I see a work harder, buy more, superficial rubbish culture that is being forced down our throats. I see stressed, unhappy people and those are the successful ones. See, many who seem to flourish in life experience the same depressing cycle of life, of, of goal, achievement, euphoria and then emptiness. You find it in these modern autobiographies, goal, achievement, euphoria, emptiness. They strive for their goal, they achieve their goal, when they achieve it they they experience great euphoria and then having achieved their goal they wonder what life is all about and they dive down to emptiness. Goal, achievement, euphoria, emptiness. Goal, achievement, euphoria, emptiness. See, read between the lines of these books and, and that's what we see. And We see it in ordinary lives as well. People are uncertain what life is all about and therefore not sure how to live it. At the Christianity Explored course that we run here, we uh, begin the course by asking the question, if you could ask God one question and you knew it would be answered, what what would it be? What would you ask God? Someone answered like this. Life keeps asking me to make big decisions. Big life decisions. Decisions that I don't know how to make. I want to know what to do, how to navigate my way through life. I want to know what life is all about, where I'm heading. Because it's impossible to take the right turnings in the journey if you don't even know where you're supposed to be going. And of course, throughout life, all of us have those turnings to make. There are the obvious, huge, life-changing decisions that come along throughout life. Who to marry, what career to pursue, the place to live. But then every day in life there are huge issues to work through, moral and ethical issues at work, questions about parenting, decisions about money and climate change and politics and, well, just about everything. How do we make those decisions? How do we navigate our way through life? Now, on the surface, most people we know may appear to make a pretty good job of it. 
But I don't know whether you do this. When you stop and ask people how they come to their decisions, they struggle to give you an answer. Many people are unsure how to walk their way through life. They just seem to be walking blind. But for the Christian, well, for the Christian, we have a way of navigating our way through life, of finding our way through the moral maze, of of steering a course through the complication of competing demands. We have the word of God. Here in this book, God has spoken and he's told us what life is all about and therefore how to live it. And that's one of the reasons why the psalmist says in Psalm 119 and verse 127, I love your commands more than gold itself. See, the word of God gives me what no amount of money or success can buy. It gives me meaning in life and therefore teaches me the direction in which to travel. I love your word because it teaches me how to walk. See, with the word of God in my hand, I'm not left all at sea. So addressing the Lord, the psalmist says in verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. With the word of God in my hand, I can see where I'm going. I'm no longer in the dark. Look, preparing this week has been a terrific thing for me. It's been a great reminder to me of the joy of knowing where I'm going in life. When I think about people like Barry Humphreys and others who haven't got a clue what life is all about, it's such a joy knowing what life is all about. Knowing how to make decisions. Knowing what things matter and what things don't. Knowing how to order my life. What priorities I should have. Knowing how to make ethical decisions. Knowing how and what to teach my children. Knowing what to do with my money and my time. Knowing how to be a son and a pastor, a friend and a lover to my wife. The Word tells me all these things. The Word of God gives me all these things. And because I have the word of God in my hand, I'm no longer at sea and in the dark when it comes to living. Both every day and when I have those huge decisions to make. As I've thought about that, that, that this week, I found myself saying with the psalmist, verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one who rejoices in great riches. You see, with the word of God in my hand, I feel like a lottery winner. That I have security. I have freedom, peace of mind, purpose and direction in life. I love your word because it teaches me how to walk. And as I've meditated on those words, it has given me a huge sense of well-being. And that is how the psalm begins. See, Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed, a a sense of well-being, the sense that everything's okay. Now that is something that money just can't buy. But don't misunderstand. Verse 1 of this magnificent psalm is not a ridiculous promise that keeping God's law will mean that nothing will ever go wrong with me. It's not a promise that I will never struggle. And it's not a promise that if I keep God's law then I'll never have a care in the world. That's not it at all. The promise of blessing, verse 1, is a promise of the sense of well-being that ultimately everything's okay. And that blessing, that sense of well-being comes to us, verse 1, through the law of the Lord. For the word of God teaches us how to be blameless. Now, blameless firstly before the Lord. The, uh, the, the privileges of being a pastor are huge. Now, I find myself intimately involved with people in the high points in their lives, at engagements, at weddings, baptisms... Often I'm there, front row and in the best seat in the house, totally involved as people go through some of the happiest days of their lives. It is a privileged position. 
It is also a privilege to be with people in their their lowest points, in their darkest days. Because when people are going through their most desperate times and I'm called in to help them, it's then that I meet people with, with the most extraordinary, the most extraordinary people. People who show such remarkable godliness in times of extreme pain and uncertainty. People who handle themselves with such dignity when the future is so bleak. People who show courage and astonishing faith in God when they face the most tragic of circumstances. I think of a friend from my time as a curate in in Harold Wood in Essex. We've got some friends here from Harold Wood today. It's really nice to have them here. And they'll know her. Tracy was her name. She was a remarkable Christian woman who had a very long fight with cancer. Whenever I visited her, I learned more from her than, than she ever learned from me. And that was certainly the case when her life came to a close. For in death, she had a sense of well-being, of, of the word here, of being blessed, of blessing. And she was blessed because, verse 1, her way was blameless. She, verse 1, walked according to the law of the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand what I've just said. Tracy wasn't a perfect person. It wasn't that she never broke God's law. That's not the point at all. That's not what it means in verse 1, to walk according to the law of the Lord. The word for law here is the word Torah. The Torah being the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now please note, the Torah does not teach me, if you don't hear anything else this morning, this is worth Uh, Well, I hope it's worth hearing, but it's worth lodging in your mind. The Torah does not teach me to live up to a certain standard to be blameless in God's sight. It's not a list of laws that if only I could live it, then I'd be right with God. That is not the point of the Torah at all. No, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is teaching me about Christ, as is the whole of the Old Testament. Now, in case you're uh, wondering if this is uh, just William's gone off on one, uh, let me tell you to uh, turn up, if you will, John chapter 5, and you'll see it from the lips of Jesus himself. Uh, Page uh, 1069. And I think when I first saw this verse, it was remarkably liberating and instructive in me understanding how to understand the Old Testament. Page 1069. It's John chapter 5 and verse 39. And here in this chapter, Jesus is speaking to the Jews of his day and not least of all to some of the leaders of the Jewish people in his day. And so Jesus says, John chapter 5 verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. And then look at these words. These are the scriptures that testify about me, says Jesus. And you see, the Old Testament scriptures, all of them are about Jesus. So Jesus says here to the Jews of his day, you can study the scriptures all you like. And it's good to study them, but if you do not come to know the Christ through them, you have misunderstood them. So you and I, we can study the Old Testament for ages, but if we don't conclude Christ, we've missed the point of the scriptures. Now that is true of the whole of the the scriptures, says Jesus in John 5.39. So it is certainly true of the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. The law is about the Christ. And it tells me how I can be right with God through the Christ. Let me flesh that out a little bit for you. Take the, uh, the sacrificial system laid out in the Torah. 
The sacrifices in the book of Leviticus teach me that my sin is so serious that someone has to die. So every time I sin, in the Old Testament, I have to uh, sacrifice something. Blood must be shed to atone for my sin. My sin is no small thing before a holy God. Someone has to pay for my transgression. Either I can pay myself in hell, or I can accept the blood of God's appointed sacrifice on my behalf. Now from our verse in John 5:39, we know the sacrifices all point to Jesus. Jesus, who is the one perfect sacrifice. And so you see, as we turn back to Psalm 119 and verse 1, the psalmist knows that he can be blameless as he walks according to the Torah, the law which tells him to trust in the blood sacrifice that the Lord has provided. See, the Torah is never about living up to a certain standard. It's saying, no, no, you cannot do that. But I've provided a way, says the Lord, through the Torah, for you to be cleansed and to be blameless in my sight. So, verse 1, to walk according to the law of the Lord will be to acknowledge my sin and to turn to God's sacrificial provision for forgiveness. And when I do that, verse 1, I am counted blameless before the Lord. I am right in his sight. And when I am counted blameless by the Lord and before the Lord, then I am blessed. Then I am right with God. That gives me a marvellous sense of well-being that ultimately everything's okay. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless who walk according to the law of the Lord. Now let me ask you, do you know it? Do you know that wonderful feeling that when you lay your head on your pillow at night that ultimately everything's okay? Some of you will know that my my dad's uh, quite poorly. He's back in hospital again. I say again because over the last 20 years he's he's been very seriously ill. He's got a a, a bad heart condition. Uh, I still remember the first heart attack he had. I wasn't living at home. I had a phone call from my mum. Uh, I was living about 20 miles north of where they were living or about 20 miles north of where he'd been taken uh, to hospital at least. And uh, she told me that he had a heart attack and that he was at Leicester Hospital and I remember jumping into my car and travelling at probably some considerable miles per hour over the speed limit down the A1, longing to reach my dad in time. I wanted to see him. I wanted to say goodbye to him. And as much as I longed for that, even as I was driving down the motorway, I can still remember that feeling that, that ultimately everything was okay because dad had become a Christian just months before. It was a wonderful feeling. Of course I wanted to see him. Of course I wanted to say goodbye, but ultimately everything was okay because he is blameless in God's sight. Well, I did see my dad. He did pull through. And since then, because he's been so poorly, there have been many other times when he's been staring death in the face. And he and I and the rest of the family who are Christians have known that blessedness of verse 1, the sense of well-being, of knowing that whatever happens, ultimately everything's okay. Well, then we're blessed by being blameless before the Lord. And secondly, uh, blessed by being blameless before men or maybe I should write or maybe it should be blameless in life see once I've been declared blameless before the Lord the law tells me to live a life that reflects that I'm a child of God look at verse 2 blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart now the word statutes here speak of the permanence of the word of God 
and particularly of the laws engraved or inscribed. Now that ought to make us think immediately of something like the Ten Commandments. The Lord's engraved, inscribed. Now turn with me then, if you will, again, keep your finger in Psalm 119. Turn with me to to Exodus chapter 20 and uh, page 77. Page 77, Exodus 20. And we'll see, without even looking at the particular commandments, in order to understand the Ten Commandments properly, the most important verse is verse 2. Are you there? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, even before the first commandment is given, God reminded that he had already rescued his people from slavery. The commandments were never given as a way to be saved. It was never a case of live these ten commandments and you can be right with God. It was always, I have already rescued you. I have already brought you out of slavery. You are already the saved people of God. And so the commandments were given for the people of God to live a life that reflected that they were the children of God. For the law of God reflects the character of God. We're to be generous because he is generous. We shouldn't lie because he is truthful. We should be faithful because he is faithful and so on. And so his statues teach us how to live as children of God. The engraved words teach us how to live. And what uh, the psalmist is saying in Psalm 119 verse 2 is there is blessing in living out the law of God. Psalm 119 verse 2 Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. And the word wrong there in verse 3 has the sense of, of wronging someone else. If I walk in God's ways, I'll not wrong others. I'll not cross others. I'll, I'll do nothing unfair. And so I'll have no enemies. See, we all know that dreadful feeling of, of fearing being found out when we've done something wrong. Even if we've got away with it, wondering if, if we haven't covered our tracks well enough, wondering if someone saw us, wondering if someone we love will find out. But if, verse 3, we wrong no one, we have a sense of well-being. There is nothing to fear. And so I know this blessing of the Lord. Nothing to fear and no regrets. See, living to, uh, according to God's word is good for me. God's law, his statutes, his precepts are for my good. Verse 4, you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. See, no shame. No regrets. That's a great way to live life, isn't it? See, if I seek the Lord with all my heart, verse 2, which I do through his word, then I'll get to the end of my life and know that I've lived life as I should. It won't be that I won't have made any mistakes, but as I look at life as a whole, I'll be able to say, yeah, I was heading in the right direction. What a terrific thought that is. To get to the end of my life and to be able to say, I haven't wasted my life. I've only got one shot at life. I don't get a rerun. I, I would love it if I did. I'd do so many things differently, but I don't get a rerun. So how wonderful to think I'm going to get to the end of my life if I, as I seek the Lord in his word, get to the end and say, I headed in the right direction. I made the right decisions. 
Walking according to the word of the Lord gives me that. Because in God's word I get to know God himself, which is what I'm made for. What a blessing. And before we move on, let me highlight one more blessing that comes through throughout this psalm. The blessing of freedom that comes through keeping God's word. Look at verse 14. I rejoice, the strength of the word here, I rejoice in following your statutes as one who rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your words. Do you see how happy the psalmist is to be in the word of God? And that's because living according to God's word gives me freedom. Just flip over to verse 45 and verse 44 first of all. I will always obey your law forever and ever. Verse 45, I will walk about in freedom for I have sought out your precepts. This is a remarkable verse. Obeying the Bible is freedom. It's a remarkable verse because people think it's exactly the opposite. It was, uh, I think, ten years ago now that I was asked at short notice to step into doing a radio debate on one of the London radio stations. I wasn't well prepared. It didn't go well. I can't even remember now what the debate was about. But at one stage I made this, this very point that obeying the Bible gives freedom. And the radio presenter on air couldn't believe what I said and he just said over the air, what did you say? The Bible gives you freedom? What do you mean? It's restrictive and confining. It's always telling me what I can't do. Thou shalt not do this, that and the other, he said. Now that's how most people would see God's commandments. A list of don'ts that stop me from having fun. What is really sad is I meet Christians who feel the same way about the Bible. Oh, God is just out there to ruin my fun. Well, look, to understand this, let me um, take you in your, in your mind to the Swiss Alps for a moment. Uh, under the, the towering and magnificent peaks of Mount Eiger, the Monk and the Jungfrau. That's where I learned to ski. I can vividly remember my first morning on the nursery slopes. I'd never had skis strapped to my feet before. I was all over the place. And the Swiss instructor began to tell me and the rest of the group to do the most peculiar things. He told me to bend my knees, or more literally, he said, bendy knees, which I did, but it felt so odd. He told me to point my toes in and to lock my knees together as I bent them. And then he told me to face down the slope, which was the last thing I wanted to do. It all seemed so strange and restrictive. Everything he told me to do went against the grain. And when I didn't obey him, I kept falling over and it hurt. But once I started to do what he said, I found I could not only stand up on my skis, but I could actually go down the slope on my skis and then turn corners on my skis and then even avoid other people who were on skis. It was marvellous. And once I could get down the nursery slope, I was up on the big slopes and the more I obeyed the instructor, the more I could do. I could eventually go on black runs and over moguls and all over the mountain. I was free, do you see? But my freedom came from obeying the instructor. And in my freedom I saw more of the mountain and more of the magnificent scenery and enjoyed more of the holiday. But even then there were still rules to obey. Rules to help me, like don't go over the edge. Not to ruin my fun, but to save my life, do you see? Obeying the instructor gave me freedom. At first his instructions seemed restrictive, they did in fact liberate me. God's law is the same. Keep it and we have freedom. Freedom to enjoy life to the full. It's what Jesus said. I have come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. 
Abundant life. That's what Jesus wants to give us. Not restricted life. Enjoy life to the full. Find out what life is really all about. That's what you find when you start obeying his word. God's laws and precepts are not there to cramp and confine, but to teach us how to enjoy life and to stop us from hurting ourselves. And if you're not convinced from the word of God, then look around at the alternative. Just on the news this morning before I came out, I was hearing again much of what we've heard about the dreadful drink culture that is now in Britain, of people going out and getting sloshed night after night. That is their life. They are enslaved by alcohol. And people will be enslaved by drugs and more subtly enslaved by their career or by their desire to put themselves first or whatever. Jesus said everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You will become enslaved by something. And Jesus says I want to free you from that. You need not be a slave. You can have freedom. And the psalmist tells us that in God's word we see freedom. God's word is good. It teaches me how to live. And so secondly, and uh, more briefly, and over the page on the handout, if you're still following, uh, secondly, getting to know the Word of God. The blessing from the Word of God, now getting to know the Word of God. See, because the psalmist knows all this, he longs to get to know the Word. Look what he says in verse 9 of Psalm 119. Verse 9, he says, How can a young man keep his way pure? It's a great question. I guess he was young. Maybe he wasn't. I don't know. I'm guessing he was a young man. He's asking, what, what can I do to keep my way pure? If he'd been an old woman, he would have said, how can, how can an old woman keep her way pure? And the answer, verse 9, by living according to your word. How can I live a pure life? By living according to your word. And so, verse 11, he says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's a great memory verse. It's a memory verse about mem- mem- memorising scripture. It's one of the first verses that I ever learned as a as a new Christian, how can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sing it against, sin against you. Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. I don't have any actions like Kate Selby, but it's a good verse to learn all the same. Learning the word of God by heart is a good thing and we ought to do it more. But this is not just about memorising individual verses. It's about knowing the Bible so well that it is in me in my heart, I've hidden your word in my heart, verse 11. Knowing the Bible so well that it flows through my veins. I think it was Jim Packer who talks about having bibline blood. Having the Bible run through our lives, not just knowing a few memory verses, but knowing the big thrust of the Bible, getting to know what the Bible says, and so always knowing what to do in every situation. I had the uh, privilege of working for a man who was just like that, Whenever I went for advice from from my rector, Richard Bewes, when I was working in London, he always had such wise words to give me. At first, as I went into his office uh, on on numerous occasions and asked him about things, it almost seems as if he had a hotline to God. He just knew what to say. And when he spoke, I thought, that's what I've got to do. He didn't have a hotline to God. Over the years, he'd soaked himself in the scriptures. Uh, To use the words of verse 11, he'd hidden God's word in his heart. Over the years as a Christian and a pastor he'd encountered so many of life's difficult situations and each time he'd gone away and thought how does the Bible instruct me in this situation? And so now after 50 years or more of walking with the Lord whenever I asked him he knew instinctively how to react. He had as Packer would put it bibline blood. 
The word of God was, as the psalmist put it, hidden in his heart. Verse 11 should be the desire of every Christian to get to know the word of God better. Because as I get to know the word of God better, I get to know God better. And as I know him better and his word better, I know how to live better. To hide it in our heart, to learn it by heart, to know instinctively how to react in every situation. But listen, there are no shortcuts in this. No shortcuts. In our culture at the moment, we want everything now, from instant credit to instant custard. Everything's immediate, isn't it? No, it's not going to happen with the Bible. God doesn't speak in sound bites. We're going to have to work hard if we want to know it like this. We've got to read it every day. Now, look, I don't want you to go on a guilt trip. I know it is hard for many of you. I can see many faces in front of me and I think you are going through hard times. Your life is busy. But how are we going to cope with the hard times? How are we going to cope with the busyness? We've got to get to know the word of God better. So don't be guilty about it, but say, yes, I want to get to know God's word. Maybe it means watching less of the news and I'm into watching the news, but watch it a little bit less if you've never done it before. Let me uh, hold up these notes. I think Andrew held them up last time, the Explore Bible Reading Notes. I think they're the best Bible reading notes that are around at the moment, uh, certainly in this country. I don't know whether there are any better uh, abroad. If there are, let me know. These are terrific. A little bit of Bible reading every day. It will do us so good. And then the other thing that, that Andrew mentioned last week... Um, Uh, Joining a small group. If you didn't get one of these little handouts, get one of those. Uh, Speak to Andrews. Join a small group where together we can get to know the Bible better. And so be just like the psalmist. Maybe you're saying, actually all of that is is a step too far for me. I'm way back. Well, will you join Christianity Explored? Uh, The course begins in October. Sign up for the course and say, I'm going to start right back at the beginning. That's what I feel I need. That's okay. It's all right. You might be coming here for years. It's okay. You're safe here. No one's going to look at you and say, oh, you're going to... No, none of that. Come along. Get to know the Bible better. It teaches us how to walk through life, which takes us to our third point, and that is uh, on on the handout there, guidance from the Word of God. See, when I get to know the Bible, I will know everything I need to know through life. Now, turn with me, uh, finally, as we come to a close, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Page 1222. Page 1222. And a remarkable verse uh, that's well worth knowing and believing. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. See, everything I need. I don't need anything else. I've got everything I need to live life and to be godly. God's divine powers give us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. As I get to know him, I have everything I need. And through these, that is his glory and goodness, he's given us these his very great and precious promises, the Bible so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. See the point? The Bible is all I need for guidance through life. Everything we need for life and godliness he has given us through his great and precious promises. But I meet Christians who are not so sure about this. 
And I understand why. How can the Bible guide and instruct me in very personal decisions? Don't I need something else? Oh, no, no, the Bible says you don't need anything else, but don't I need something? What about you know, younger people here, who I, am to, who I am to marry? Well, let's take that as an example of how the Bible guides and directs very specifically. I heard it said, unhelpfully, I think, that the Bible only says three things about who you should marry. This is unhelpful, but I'll tell you what I heard. You've just got to know that the Bible says that you've got to marry somebody of the opposite sex because it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you know, that sort of line. That you should marry a Christian and that you should marry someone who's not already married. That's all you need to know and then you're free to marry whoever you like. Now, I know what was being said there, but I think it's very unhelpful because the Bible has so much more to say on who I should marry. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. A spouse is a gift of God to us to help us through life and to help us to become more like Jesus, ultimately, because that's the real goal of life, isn't it? So in choosing a life partner, we should ask, will this person help me or hinder me in becoming more like Jesus? And you see, there are plenty of people who are Christians of the opposite sex who are not already married who would not help me towards godliness. Why? You might question, but that's still the case. Now, why would I want to marry someone like that when becoming more like Jesus is my priority and it's a struggle enough as it is? I need somebody to help me in that, don't I? I need all the help I can get. And the Bible tells me that I should use my gifts to build up the church. It says that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So I should marry someone who will help me and encourage me to serve others with the gifts I've got. Somebody who isn't going to have other priorities. Somebody who's going to acknowledge my gifts and say, yes, go and do that. See, if I wasn't married to Caroline, if I was married to someone who who made it difficult for me, I'd never be able to do this job. I'd never be able to use the gifts that I've got. I've got somebody who's behind me, who encourages me to do that. The Bible tells me how I should use my money and my home. It tells me that I should have a concern to reach the lost. I want to marry someone who's, who's going to help me to, to be living like that and not hinder me in those things. Begin to apply what the Bible says about my goals and attitudes and motives and suddenly I see the Bible is very specific on every decision in life, who I should marry and every decision. See, the Bible gives me clear and definite commands about how I should live and when I apply them to every decision I'm making, I'll find that I get very clear guidance. I am to glorify God. Every decision I can ask, will this decision glorify God? I am to seek first the kingdom of God. I can ask of every decision, does this decision help? Am I seeking God first in his kingdom? I am to become more like Jesus. I can ask of every decision, will this help me or hinder me in becoming more like Jesus? I am to proclaim the gospel. Is this helping me or hindering me in that? I'm to use the gifts I've got for building up the the, the church. Will this decision help or hinder? I'm to meet with other Christians. If I take this promotion, will it stop me from meeting with other Christians? Then don't take the promotion. The Bible is very definite and very clear. And so I find that the Bible clearly guides me over which university I should go to, which job I should take, whether I should take a promotion or not, where I should live, how I should use my money. It teaches about my family life and my work life, about life in society and life on my own. Here in this book, God has given me everything I need for life and godliness. And people struggle to make decisions who are Christians because they haven't got their, 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 their nose in the book. Don't mishear me. Decision-making is tough. 
but a lot of people simply haven't got to know the Bible well enough. When you do, it is such a blessing. For in the word of God, I know the meaning of life. And in knowing where life is heading, I know how to navigate my way through life and to avoid the meaninglessness and directionlessness that pervades our society and is so evident in modern autobiographies. And come to that, it is ultimately there in the autobiography of every man and woman who walks this planet who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder the psalmist said, I love your word. Let's pray together.